Welcome to another episode of Conduct Detrimental. We are back this week. Dan Wallet, our producer extraordinaire, Mike Lawson. The gang is back in town. What's up, boys? Hey, Dan, good to be back. I took a, what did I take, about two weeks off? Uh, it's just the time really flies, so time to get back into the saddle. There are a couple of great stories this week. I couldn't miss out on the stories we're going to cover. Sarver, there's a decision in the Oakland Raiders relocation lawsuit. But anyway, good to be back, and we're joined today by Mike Lawson. So it's the three of us going forward today on Conduct Detrimental. Hey, Mike. How's it going? Always good to be on. Dan, as you mentioned, busy slate today. The big news in the sports law realm Robert Sarver has voluntarily agreed, seemingly, to sell the Phoenix Suns and the Phoenix Mercury. This comes on the heels of the announcement last week where Sarver was getting fined $10 million and banned for one year. What has happened since then, uh, you know, if you were reading the tea leaves, something was bound to happen when LeBron and Chris Paul and sponsors and minority members speak out. But we'll get into that. Number two, the story that uh, seemingly is on. Right about to happen, Aaron Judge, with about 15 games left in the season, is at his 60th home run. That ball, when it does, is, is uh, hopefully, I'm not jinxing it, if there is another one hit or if there's another two or three or four, liability issues when that ball is hit into the crowd. And we almost saw one uh, for ball number 60. Uh, and last but not least, we followed the St. Louis Rams saga very closely. The Oakland Raiders relocation saga has an update. So going to get into all three. A reminder, our podcast sponsored by Themis Bar Review. This next week or so, we're going to have uh, bar results coming around the country. I'm starting to see some of them trickle out on LinkedIn and Twitter. So, yeah, if you are looking for the top bar prep company in the entire galaxy, that is Themis Bar. Head to themisbar.com slash con detrimental. I've had a couple people reach out this week for our promo code. It is con detrimental. You'll get a good chunk of change off. And if you can't remember con detrimental, just reach out and we'll give you the code. Okay. So let us get started. The big story this week, Robert Sarver. Mike, you want to fill us in on what has transpired since uh, in the, last, the last week or so? I feel like you've been, been following the tea leaves here. Yeah, so we talked about the ultimate suspension that, that came about from the independent investigation that was conducted. Uh, they started this last November. We went through the details. You know, he has been suspended for one year, fined $10 million. But we felt that this was not strong enough for the investigation, what they determined and what he did over the ownership of the Suns and, and the Mercury as well, that we felt like there was something else that needed to happen. And what we saw was minority ownership started to speak out that they were recommending that Sarver, you know, sold his ownership stake. And I believe, you know, there was a lot of NBA players that started to speak up about it. And then the most recent news is now is Sarver has voluntarily said that he is willing to sell the team and look into options to selling the team. So again, if you want to, you know, listen to our last episode, we covered it pretty in depth about what transpired through their investigation. But right now, I think this is uh, really eye-opening. And I think there's a good close connection with our other team scandal that we've been covering closely with Dan Snyder. But the comparisons, I think that this might show. Let me talk about first. So PayPal is a big sponsor. They're patch jersey for the Suns. They threatened that they would not renew their sponsorship with the Suns if Sarver uh, maintained his ownership. So there, there was a lot of outcry for him, for this to happen. And this is the first time that we're seeing where this public outcry is actually causing this to, to potentially occur and Sarver to, to sell his ownership. Now, I, I alluded to before, obviously, we're, we're seeing the same thing with Dan Snyder and his ownership and everything that's happening with the con congressional hearings and the allegations that are going on with how the organization was run under Dan Snyder. Dan Snyder's wife is now in operation of the Commanders, former Redskins. 
Oh, I'm not ready to go to Dan Snyder. I'd have a couple of more important points. I want to focus on the National Basketball Association. This gets Adam Silver off the hook completely. I think there was kind of a consensus across the board from players, not the sponsors, the media, public. One year wasn't enough when you compare what Sarver did to the single episode of Donald Sterling and also of Bruce Levinson, who's the former owner of the Atlanta Hawks, who made, you know, I guess, comments in an email referring, you know, making a sort of a racist generalization about the fan base. And Donald Sterling, one episode illegally recorded inadmissible evidence. I, I think if that had gone to court and Sterling had challenged it, he may have had a bona fide case to push back against any forced sale of his ownership interest. Uh, I, I think Shelley Sterling did Adam Silver a huge solid by pushing that issue in probate court. So from my vantage point, it was incomprehensible that those two owners with a single episode were excommunicated from the league, yet Sarver, whose conduct bears more directly on his stewardship of the organization and spans an 18-year period with multiple incidents, misogyny, sexism, racism. It goes so far beyond what Sterling and Levinson did that I think it cried out for a lifetime suspension. So I suspect that there was some behind-the-scenes maneuvering and some pressure brought to bear on Sarver from maybe some of the other owners, maybe Adam Silver back-channeling. I think this was a huge sigh of relief, at least for Adam Silver, because he was getting hammered for what was clearly an inadequate punishment. And it does raise the question to me going forward, if Silver has so much difficulty granting or imposing a lifetime banishment on, a, on, a, on an owner for conduct so severe and likely would have lost in the Donald Sterling case had it been litigated over the validity, validity of a suspension, why don't we have an, an NBA personal code of conduct? I think that's I think that's going to be the next step because ultimately if the, if the, if the commissioner's hands are tied in a situation like this, there's something wrong with the NBA constitution and bylaws that don't sufficiently empower the commissioner to take adequate action. And I'd like to see a personal code of conduct, almost like the NFL's personal conduct policy. Just a couple things. I mean, there was a comment from a former guest of our show, Brian Windhorst, and, and he basically explained it. It's very interesting. You know, let's, Dan, you, you mentioned it. I mean, we shouldn't get into the language. People can look up the Bruce Levinson email, which was an email, I think, sent to Danny Ferry, a basketball executive, basically making a preference for white fans, right? That's what Bruce Levinson said in this email. And if you look at, you know, you go back and I listened to the Donald Sterling, what was recorded on his tapes, he was making a, a preference or he was basically telling his, his mistress not to hang out with, with people yeah. of a different race. So it, it was a preference. It was racial allegations, right? But that's the standard that's essentially been set. And if there's evidence of racist comments, that that's going to raise to a level that you should be, you know, voluntarily should settle, but enough to, to move you out of the league. Dan, to your point, and I, I'm going to agree with you, I, I, uh, Brian Windhorst said, well, that's the line that was set. And, you know, that's why the NBA time and time again in that report said that there was no racist intent by Sarver. But I'm sitting here and I'm like, I read these, you know, these various allegations, right, that were some of which were confirmed by the NBA's reporting that, there were, you know, it was a little mixed bag, right? It was racist comments, misogynistic comments, misogynistic action. So it, almost when I was listening to Windhorse comments and Windhorse kind of explanation of what transpired, it was like, well, you can't be a racist, but it's okay to be a misogynist. It's okay to be a jerk and a misogynist. You just can't be a racist. And I don't know, I, I think in 2020, I mean, who is the NBA to, to make that call? So I, I, with all due respect to Brian Windhorse, I don't, 
I don't think it's okay to be a misogynist in, in the day and age of 2022 and make comments about women's physical appearances and, you know, accusing people as an owner of an NBA team, accusing women of getting a breast augmentation or saying that they can't advance in the company if they're pregnant, right? Th those are comments that can't be said in the year of 2022. So Adam Silver, right, he gave these very public comments. He goes, I can't remove an owner from a team. And we didn't talk about it in the last podcast, but it would require a three-fourths vote of all NBA owners. So Draymond Green came out in his podcast this past week, uh, you know, forward with the, uh, you know, the Golden State Warriors. He called for an NBA vote. So, Dan, to your point, 100% right. You had this uprising of players. You had LeBron. You had Chris Paul, a member of the Phoenix Suns. And now Draymond Green saying this punishment was light. We need a vote to kick him out. And Adam Silver kind of said the quiet part out loud that he's in a very tough spot. He's basically an employee to those owners. And now Adam Silver is completely let off the hook by Sarver pulling the ripcord on his own. Yeah, Jam Najafi, who's the Phoenix Suns minority owner, made a very valid point that had this been an executive, general manager, coach, employee of the team, anybody short of an owner, they would have been fired for this kind of conduct. Hands down, no question. Why should ownership or equity protect an individual from the same type of you know, banishment? And I think it does point to the inadequacy of the current language in the NBA constitution and bylaws, which don't adequately cover a situation like this. If we go back to Donald Sterling, the NBA's theory of the provision of the constitution that he violated was that it violated the contracts that the league had with sponsors. And it, it was some amorphous theory of what exactly was violated. There was no express language that covered this precise type of situation. And I think it's, if you want to, if you want to avoid this kind of uh, fallout going forward, I think the league needs to amend its constitution to adequately deal with situations that involve systemic racism, misogyny. This isn't the first time this has happened throughout the NBA. The Dallas Mavericks also had an investigation involving a team-wide culture in the executive suite, and Mark Cuban got off the hook. So it, it's not going to end with Robert Sauver or the Dallas Mavericks. There are going to be situations in the future, hopefully maybe with James Dolan, uh, we can get new ownership, but the league needs to have a policy in place in order to give teeth to, to any type of investigation to empower the commissioner to remove an owner or recommend an owner's removal for something that fits these circumstances. And right now, the constitution and bylaws are silent on this kind of behavior, whereas the NFL, to its credit, has come up with a personal conduct policy, I guess applicable only to players, but there's nothing stopping the commissioner from imposing a similar code of conduct. Now, Dan, you mentioned Jam Ninjafi, minority ownership, but he's also the second largest stakeholder in the Suns organization. I think a big part of this right now is what options does Sarver have to sell this team? Where does it go with liquidation of majority assets, minority assets? So Dan, I know there's a lot of different things that could happen, but is Jam Ninjafi, you know, could he make a lot of money here with the valuation that is currently on the table for Phoenix? Well, he doesn't have to sell his interest. Sarver is going to sell his majority interest and his penalty is he's going to walk away more than $2 billion richer. And there'll be a long line of bidders for a franchise. These types of teams or teams in professional sports don't come up for sale very often. And when you have a team that's on the cusp of potentially being an NBA champion in a, a very attractive market like Phoenix, that allows legal sports betting. And let's not forget that the teams in Arizona have the entitlement 
to operate in-person sportsbooks and online sports betting. The revenue streams available for the owners of pro sports franchises in Arizona is uniquely different than that in almost any other state. There's going to be a long line of bidders. I don't think it's going to be John Najami. Maybe he's going to be one of the bidders, but you could be talking record sale for an NBA franchise when you factor in the opportunity to have online sports betting license that comes along with team ownership. You're talking about a revenue stream on an annual basis that could easily eclipse $50 million just for that one skin. And, and, and you extrapolate that over 20 years. I mean, that's, that's half the value of an NBA franchise. So th- this is going to be a very attractive bidding opportunity for whoever wants to own a team. So I'm going to give you something interesting, Dan. I mean, that was my initial thought. Sarver would sell. I think he owns about a third of the team. Then I'm not sure if we're approaching record numbers, right? I think the estimation, uh, I looked at Forbes valuations. It was about a $1.8 billion valuation for the team. Uh, Windhorse was out here saying the team might fetch 2.5, but if you're only you know, selling a third of the team and it's a majority interest, right? If it's the highest guy in the team, maybe you're getting 800, maybe you're getting a, a billion. But according to Baxter Holmes, who we should give his credit to, he did a fantastic job breaking the story for ESPN. According to sources, he is saying that Sarver, as the team's managing partner, has the ability to sell the team in full. So Jam Najafi, his, major- his minority interest, normally doesn't have any power. You just kind of are a figurehead owner of a team and you're waiting for the team to be sold in order to make some type of profit from your acquisition. So it's been well reported that the team was purchased by Sarver for approximately 500 million. He's going to basically make 4X. I'm not sure how much Jam Najafi bought his minority interest for, but you know, by nature of those comments that we pointed out that he called for the resignation of Robert Sarver, now all of a sudden, um, you know, he, he seems to be in a position to make, uh, you know, liquidate his assets and make some money here. So Maybe it was a play on his part, but the minority owner calling for the resignation of Snyder normally has no bearing on whether someone or not is going to sell their team, but seems to have happened here. Mike, there was a, a point you made before, which maybe we should we should hit this before we before we move on. I put a poll out, right? And a lot of our friends from the Washington Commander saga are kind of speaking out and they're trying to say, well, if Robert Sarver is going to do Adam Silver a favor, and, and now you have the NBA Players Association speaking up at that house. Sarver did a, did a solid for the sports community, right? Is there more pressure now applied to Snyder and the commanders? Dan Wallach, you mentioned, right? Like, I don't know, Dan Snyder is not someone that's dealing with a single incident. It's multiple incidents. So is this going to apply any pressure to Snyder? My gut, right? I put a poll out here. I said, is it going to make Snyder more likely to sell voluntarily, less likely to sell voluntarily? or no impact at all. My gut was going to be no impact. And at least the public, and at least I put this vote out, Instagram on and Twitter, 75% said no impact at all. I mean, do you guys, is, do you guys actually think that Snyder is going to, this is going to move the needle on Dan Snyder? Zero impact. And Dan, I agree with you and the 75% of the people who voted for no impact because the NBA laid the groundwork for Sarver's you know, excommunication from the league. They published the investigative report prepared by Wachtell Lipton. They provided a link to it. You could read the entire report in full, whereas the NFL not only didn't publish the report, they didn't even have an investigative report. It was just oral, right, with a, with a, with a news release summary. So the NFL whitewashed its investigation. The NBA, to its credit, provided full transparency. And I think once that report became part of the public domain, 
I think momentum generated on its own and ultimately led to where we are today with Robert Sarver selling the team. There's no similar momentum in the NBA's invest or in the NFL's investigation or Congress's investigation of, of Dan Snyder. What, whatever happened to this congressional hearing? We had testimony from Dan Snyder a little bit over a month and a half ago. There's been no release of a transcript, no buzz, no news coming out of Congress. Carolyn Maloney, who is the chairperson of the House Oversight Committee, she lost her reelection to Jerry Nadler. So she's going to be leaving office. And if the Republicans take control of the House, this is going to disappear altogether. Here's the interesting thing. The punishment is almost identical between Sarver and Snyder. Snyder was fined $10 million, and so was Sarver. Sarver was only suspended for one year. Snyder had to give up his day-to-day -day activities and had to push it over to his wife. But ultimately, they're the same. I agree with you, Dan Wallach. I agree. They, the, the NFL, I don't know why these investigations were not published, and, and that's the whole thing. Release the report. We want to see what Snyder actually did and then in the comparison to his punishment, because maybe in the eyes of the NFL, the punishment didn't actually fit what he did, right? And that's what people were saying when they released the investigation of what Sarver did. And they said that 10 million in one year suspension is not enough for everything that he did and the culture that he cultivated and forced upon his employees for the last 17 years. But the issue with that too was the investigation also had this conclusion that his actions weren't deemed to be racist or misogynist, even though everything that you read through the report was like, this is racist, this is misogynist, he's, he's clearly very sexist and, and he degrades you know female employees. But the overarching like decision was that this wasn't right. It was very confusing on, on that aspect of it. But I agree. I think because they released the report, the pressure came out that $10 million in one year suspension was not enough. So I think that forced the hands more so on the public and the public pressure for the removal of him, where Snyder, we still don't even know like the details of it besides the testimonies that we've seen. And you're right, the well, congressional hearings, the investigations, but in terms of moving the needle, I agree. I, I don't think it will. The one to watch, though, is the investigation being conducted by Mary Jo White regarding the allegations against Snyder made at that congressional you know, roundtable hearing earlier in the year. There's no timeline for the conclusion of Mary Jo White's investigation. That's the one to watch, given the recent you know, findings with regard to uh, Stephen Ross. I wouldn't expect the NFL to just simply gloss over this conduct if Mary Jo White finds that there's any substance or validity to the allegations and accusations made by you know, the accuser. There was an incident directly involving Dan Snyder. That's still out there. And if he's found to have you know, engaged in the conduct he's being accused of, he might be forced to sell the team. I think that presents a much greater threat to his continued tenure ownership of the Washington Commanders than any congressional investigation that's likely to just end, you know, on election day. Yeah, and and I thought you were going to say Dan's going to. Uh, that's probably a greater threat than Robert Sarver, an owner in a different sport, volunteering yeah. to. Tell his team. You know, if we're trying to find impacts, and I, I think this is maybe, uh, you know, we, we've, I think we've exhausted this one, but Dan, you mentioned, right, you know, the NBA released a full report. I think probably they were impacted by the blowback that they received from the failure to release a Washington commander's report. I do think that had an impact and mm -hmm. of impacts moving forward. You know, the Phoenix Suns put out a very strong statement back in October of 2021 that they deleted yesterday off of Twitter. Uh, Baxter Holmes found this. Phoenix Suns basically said, Documentary evidence in our possession and eyewitness accounts directly contradict the reporter's accusations. We urge everyone not to rush to judgment here. And it goes on. The Phoenix Suns were proven. Uh, I mean, I, I understand why that was deleted because the NBA found that the report happened to be true. So, yeah, this is why in the in the heat of the moment, you got to be very careful the statements that you issued. So we don't know who's going to own the Phoenix Suns the next year, but 
Somebody, somebody said to delete those tweets, but yeah, we can end, uh, I think, end the conversation here. The next topic we wanted to talk about, this is one, uh, you know, I think all of us as, as baseball fans, we've been following this one very closely. Aaron Judge is on the, uh, the path to history. Uh, the home run record for single season home runs is 73 home runs set by Barry Bonds. For many, many years, the home runs, the home run record for home runs in a season was 60. Uh, that was set by Babe Ruth. Then that record was eclipsed by Roger Maris, both members of the New York Yankees. Obviously, the steroid era of baseball with Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire, Barry Bonds, you know, those numbers were eclipsed, but the Yankee record remains 61. As of this recording, I don't know when people listen to this, Aaron Judge is sitting on 60. So it looks like he's going to eclipse 61. He's got 15 games left, just about. So could he get to 73? Probably not, but a number in, the, in between is most likely. So why are we bringing this up? Because we are lawyers. And the last time the home run record was broken, it was a very famous lawsuit. Mike, you want to give us uh, some history on what we are potentially uh, in for when Judge does hit 62, 63, 64? Absolutely. I mean, let's let's take a step backwards into the steroid era, right? It's incredible to 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 see what Aaron Judge is doing and hitting. You know, he's at 60 home runs right now, and comparing him to the the, the names of you go all the way back, right? Roger Maris and Babe Ruth in terms of American League record, but you look at the National League record and you hear Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa, and Barry Bonds in the the steroid era. And Barry Bonds, obviously, he has the Major League Baseball record for most home runs in the season of 73. Also, obviously, the National League record too. So obviously, you you all are are listening to us. You're not watching us, but I ran off screen to grab my baseball and the law textbook. It's a great, fun read of all the legal issues that have have occurred throughout the duration of baseball. You know, if you want to look them up, at baseball and law is the tag. The the authors of this uh, textbook, and like it's a it's a legal case book, so it's got cases in here. And if you turn to page 891, what Dan was just referencing was Popoff versus Hayashi. So. Let's let's take a step back and let's go into late season of 2001. And Barry Bonds had already broken the record. He had already passed Mark McGuire for hitting 70 home runs. And he hit 71 and then 72. And then in 2001, he hit his 73rd home run, the record home run. And we have Popoff, who is the plaintiff here, and Hayashi is the defendant. Hayashi was the one who ended up with the baseball. He was the one who ended up with number 73, possession of the ball, Popoff sued Hayashi because he claimed that he had initial possession of the ball and that he had his chattel, his possession of the ball, stolen by Hayashi. He made a lot of accusations saying that he was basically crawling and biting and ripping to get to the ball and remove it out of Popoff's hand. However, this was televised and there was a video and the video evidence showed that Popoff did indeed catch the ball initially. And it was the mob of fans that were around him that collided and the ball came loose and Hayashi ultimately ended up with the ball. Now this goes to uh, California superior court and the judge, judge McCarthy ends up ruling that they both had a rightful possession and a share of the possession of the ball. So what ended up happening was Judge McCarthy ordered the the ball to be sold and the proceeds to be split because they had an even possession right to the ball. Now, let's if you go a little bit further down the line, the ball ultimately ended up selling for 450,000, I believe. So they they split the value of that baseball. But it's really interesting and it really went into I, I thought what was funny was like 
you know, for all the lawyers and law students listening here, right, when you read a case, you brief the case and, you know, what's the legal issue here, right? So the legal issue was, what is the ownership rights and the possession rights of a ball that lands in the stands? I think that's such a cool, like just one liner uh, of what happens when a ball lands in the stand. So we have a similar issue here. And we saw this, Dan, you know, Lust had some fun with it, with the assault with Aaron who hit number 60, it goes into the bleacher creatures and there's just an absolute mob, right? Normally you see a home run. It kind of goes clear into somebody's hand. They catch it. Maybe somebody fights over it. No, this starts ricocheting off of the bleachers, starts bouncing around everywhere. And there's just a mob of people that dive onto the bleachers to get, to get this ball. The other issue that's separate is the value of the ball. What do you do once you have the ball? What do you ask for? How much? And things like that. And there's some interesting threads about that, but as we get towards now 61, which is tying Roger Maris's record and 62, you're going to have similar issues of people fighting for the ball and possession of the ball. And you have to look back at Popoff versus Hayashi to see, you know, who has the rights to the ball and who, who actually has possession of the ball. Whatever happens, whatever transpires, the fan who ends up getting the 61st or 62nd home run ball shouldn't be giving it back voluntarily to Aaron Judge like Michael Kessler did with the 60th home run ball. He basically walked away from, you know, I don't know how much that, that ball would have garnered, but it's free money. And well, it was happens, estimated to 150 to 200 K. So what happens when, when a fan gets the ball, Yankee security converges upon the fan and like tries to put pressure. Hey, you know, give us the ball back. They're not forcing it, but they're placing a little bit of undue persuasion on the fan before he has a chance to, uh, you know, clear his head and make a, an informed choice under no circumstances. Should this fan give the ball back voluntarily to the Yankees or to Aaron Judge? That's worth a lot of money. And I remember I wasn't around in 1961 when Roger Maris hit the 61st home run off of Tracy Ballard. But Roger Maris told Sal Durante, the fan who caught the ball, don't give it back to me. Don't give it back to me. Somebody just sell it for 5000 sell it for whatever amount of money because somebody is going to bid for it and then give me the ball. So the player looked out for the fan. <laughs> ensure that the fan got something of value. And, and I don't think give, you know, giving the fan tickets and hats and an autograph or a bat is worth anything. The, the fan should hold out for the fair value of the ball. And that's his entitlement. Balls that are hit into the, into the stands, whether they're foul balls or home run balls, belong to whomever catches it. So, Dan, you, you've said it. You, you actually hit the nail on the head. And I don't know if everybody knew, knew this. So, Michael Kessler, I saw that video. And Mike, as I was watching this video, I was remembering this pop-up case. Judge hits a ball into the bleachers in Yankee Stadium. The Yankees fans are dogpiling. It's like a football fumble. Guys are just jumping in late. So, I'm thinking, okay, they're all jumping in because they want a piece of an $100,000 ball, $200,000 ball. I think the Bonds ball, the 73rd ball, for, for frame of reference, that sold for $450,000. So if you tell me this, the, the judge 60th home run ball, the first Yankee to hit 60 since Maris, if you told me 100,000, I, I could see that. This guy, Michael Kessler, a 20-year-old kid, he gives the ball to judge. You know what judge gives him back? One signed bat and four signed balls. I can guarantee you that the value of those balls is about a 10th, right? If, if that, maybe, maybe a fifth of a of hundred thousand dollars. Maybe those, maybe that's worth $5,000. I, I just, I don't think it's fair to put the fan in that situation. Here's what's interesting is who you're negotiating with right now. These balls effectively mean nothing, right? 60, you tied Babe Ruth's record, but it's not the record, right? That's, that is a Yankee momentum, right? That's a New York Yankees and an Aaron judge, like valuable piece of memorabilia. So money-wise you're, you're negotiating with them. So you have a lot more power, maybe 
to, to negotiate directly with them. 61, same thing. You tie Roger Maris' record. 62, now I feel like it's elevated a little bit more where you're not just negotiating with the Yankees and Aaron Judge. You're also negotiating with Major League Baseball and Cooperstown because that's going to go straight into the Hall of Fame, right? If, if there's any sort of value there, it's directly with the Yankees, but that's because that ball is not going to end up with the Yankees or Aaron Judge. That's going to end up in Cooperstown. So I think that's where the the, the value increases. But and what's interesting, too, with, with Barry Bonds' home run, which is not in the Hall of Fame. So that the value at the time, back in 2001, when he hit that, they estimated that to be worth $1.5 million at the time. And everyone knew that. So the value that they were fighting for was very high and it ultimately sold for 450,000. Right now, the value could go from anywhere from 1 million. And if you, if you look at action network and a friend of the show, Darren Ravel, there are some sports memorabilia experts that say this could go up over $5 million. Who knows? This, this, this is a million dollar plus ball. I'm talking yeah. about the 62nd home run, not yes. the 61st home run, which, which merely ties the record uh, because there's a belief, first of all, it sets the American League record for the most home runs, but in the minds of many people, it would be, it would be the legitimate major league record for most home runs in a single season. So that's a million dollar plus ball. I agree with those assessments. There's going to be a bidding war for this. You know, Aaron Judge is about to become a free agent and he made a bet on himself. He turned down a seven-year, $210 million contract. And after a potential triple crown season, he's looking at a, a value to potentially eight years going up in excess of $350 million. He might be Major League Baseball's first $400 million player. He can afford to buy the damn ball back for a million or $2 million because this home run adds value to his overall contract. And it raises the sort of the, the major question that we're not even addressing. Should Major League Baseball eradicate or remove Barry Bonds, Sammy Sosa, and Mark McGuire's individual season statistics, at least with respect to the most home runs in a single season? Bonds hit 73, Sosa hit 66, 63, and 64. McGuire hit 70 and 65 home runs. I'm not saying wipe clean their individual statistics throughout their career but don't recognize those numbers, which were aided by performance enhancing drugs. Everybody knows it. There's absolutely no debate over whether those seasons were aided by, by these players taking steroids. Why, do, well, Dan, why do you think Major League Baseball continues to recognize 73 home runs as the record when we know he cheated? And if this was track and field, if this was the Tour de France, if this was you know, Lance Armstrong, these records are stricken from the books. Why do you think they remain on the books as the individual season record when everybody, 99 out of 100 people, agree that cheating occurred. You're asking my opinion. I think it's the, the sole reason. I think it's a slippery slope, right? Roger Maris had 61 home runs in 163 games. Babe Ruth obviously did in less. He had a whole era of spitballers, uh, sticky situation guys. I think once you start policing individual records, it's it's tough. I, I don't I don't like seeing right, and I'm a San Francisco Giants fan. I don't like seeing 73. Um, imagine imagine if 73 and 66 and 70 didn't exist, how big this would be about Aaron Judge passing. Uh, exactly. 62. You, you make a great point. It it deprives not only Aaron Judge, but it deprives Major League Baseball of an incredibly important moment in history that would have added tremendous value to the games, to the ratings. They could have so, they could have marketed this in a fashion that that would have been dramatically more important and and a bigger spectacle than it is now, which seems more like a localized issue within New York 
rather than a national. The fans across the country are, are, are tuning in to watch Aaron Judge break the record when there's some debate over what the record really is. And I think it's probably time, maybe after these players become deceased, you know, Bond, Sosa, McGuire, where they can't sue for defamation, maybe at some point in the future, either this commissioner, the next commissioner, or some commissioner down the road can do the, the proper thing here. I don't think this is a slippery slope. We're not going to start removing stolen base titles and hitting streaks. We're talking about one record, one record here for most home runs in a single season that un almost unquestionably was aided through cheating conducted by these three players. If this were track and field, if this were horse racing, if this were any other sport, those records would be declared invalid. They would be overturned. You don't need an asterisk like, like you needed or like the commissioner in the 1960s did and placed an asterisk above Roger Maris's home run record simply because he played eight more games. This is a different situation. This is cheating. And this goes to the integrity of the record. And no one, no one on, on either side of the debate believes that the 73 home run mark was legitimately obtained, except for maybe one person, Barry Bonds, everyone well, else knows that it was procured through illegal performance enhancing drugs. Well, here, here's what you got to love. You know, you got to love if you're Paige Odell right now, Aaron Judge's agent, because this has got to be, it has to be the greatest season leading into a free agency of all time. I mean, you have, he leads the triple crown race right now. He's about to break the American league home run record. And potentially 15 games. I mean, I'm not saying it's. I'm not saying he will do it, but he hits a home run every game. He could get towards 73. It's not possible, but maybe. But I don't know. I mean, look, when you talk about the steroid era, yes, a future commissioner maybe. But you look at Manfred. Where was Manfred when all this was happening? He was Bud Selig's number two guy. He's not going to change what Bud Selig was doing because Bud Selig for sure knew about the steroid era, but they were making so much money they didn't care. They got fans in the seats. There were so many people that wanted to watch. Look at Yankee Stadium tonight. Yankee Stadium's average ticket tonight, which was against the Pirates and Judge didn't hit a home run, but he was potentially about to hit 61. The average ticket went up like a few hundred bucks. It was packed, packed. And not just because the Yankees were leading the pennant race right now, but they want to see 61. They want to see history. Now they, they have the Boston Red Sox coming in town. So you have a historic rivalry. Aaron Judge got a four games at home to hit number 61 and 62 and then continue to, to break the record. So money, it's all about money, right? Obviously, Aaron Judge is not taking steroids and, and this is not the steroid era, but that's what was happening back in the early 2000s with Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa, Barry Bonds. It was at a point, right? 1994, they had the they had one of the worst like drop-offs of fans coming back to games after the strike. Bud Selig needed something, and the steroid air was that. So the money was overpowering this cheating scandal. Before we move off this topic, we have an appraisal on the 60-second home run ball. There's an article today in The Athletic from Daniel Kaplan and Bill Shea headlined, What Aaron Judge's Potential Home Run Ball Would Be Worth for Some Lucky Fans. And an appraisal house uh, out of New York, Ken Golden, the founder of Golden Auctions, has appraised the record-breaking ball as fetching anywhere from seven hundred and fifty thousand to one and a quarter million dollars. So, assuming that to be true, and I think we can we can end this one here, right? We started this conversation with the with the, mentioning this guy, Michael Kessel, this twenty-year-old fan. He gives the ball away to Judge for free, right? Get some bats and balls back. Listen, do every do everyone a favor here. You got three lawyers on the podcast right now. I'm sure you know your own lawyers in your various circles. If you are the lucky fan that gets that ball, 
Do not give it away for free. At least sleep on it, okay? Maybe call some friends. It's in a million-dollar decision. So don't be so quick. Give it away for the pride of the game, for the Instagram and the Sports Center post about how you're a pure fan. Listen, there's mortgages. There's bar mitzvahs. There's summer camps. Just sit on it. Just wait. You do not have to give the ball away of the night of. Don't hey, do And, Dan, they should hire one of us to represent, represent you know, the catcher of the home run ball because it's not just the sale of the ball. You become a celebrity in your own right. I mean, here we are 61 years later since Roger Maris set that record. Coincidentally, everybody remembers Sal Durante's name. Can you imagine the person who catches this ball can basically become a celebrity in his own right? Influence, at least in the short term. I mean, his Twitter followers, Instagram followers, maybe there's some celebrity value in being the person who caught the ball that transcends the value of the ball. There is no deadline by which you have to give the ball to the guy. I'm like, Kessler just gave this ball to him in about 30 minutes. So, yes, we are here on Conduct Detrimental, not just giving you legal advice, but sound financial advice. How about that? Okay, Dan, let's move over to our third and final topic. Again, we mentioned we did a lot, a lot of research into the St. Louis Rams relocation saga. We get tagged every so often by our friends in St. Louis and our friends in in different states about what teams might be relocating. And they're trying to figure out the next relocation lawsuit. But, Dan... We are in the midst of another one right now. So why don't you fill us in on the latest with the Oakland Raiders relocation lawsuit? Well, I'm not sure we're in the midst of anything anymore because a decision from the California Court of Appeals, I think the second district Court of Appeals in California, has essentially ended the last vestiges of the Oakland Raiders relocation lawsuit. For those who've been tracking the case, there were two separate cases going on on parallel tracks. There was a federal antitrust lawsuit pending in, I believe, the California federal court that was dismissed on a motion to dismiss, and and the dismissal was upheld on appeal by the Ninth Circuit. But there was also a separate state court lawsuit advancing similar claims that were raised in the St. Louis Rams case that the city of Oakland was a third-party beneficiary to the relocation policy and therefore could sue for breach of contract and unjust enrichment. And if you recall, the St. Louis you know, trial court judge allowed the third-party beneficiary claims to go forward and there was going to be a trial. Last week, the California Court of Appeals rejected that theory rejected the theory that the city of Oakland could be a third-party beneficiary to the contract or the relocation policy that governs NFL franchise relocation. So the question is, does that doom any future relocation lawsuits? Does that put an end to the theory that a city can be a third-party beneficiary to the NFL's relocation policy? And I read the decision very closely, and I, I would say I think the nuances of California contract law drove this decision rather than sort of, you know, gleaning any kind of a general rule that would come out of this decision. I think California has a very stringent standard for what constitutes the right to claim a third-party beneficiary status. There's a three-part test that's been set forth by the California Supreme Court. You've got to show that the third party is not only likely to benefit from the contract, but number two, that the motivating purpose of the contract was to provide a benefit to the third party. And three, that the intent of the parties was to create a cause of action for the party benefited by the contract. So it creates a very stringent three-part test. And according to the California Court of Appeals, the third element, that the intent of the parties, the objective of the contract, was to create a right to bring a lawsuit. That's a difficult test to satisfy in California, whereas in Missouri, the elements of a third-party beneficiary are much more streamlined. You need only show an intent 
to benefit the presumptive third party and not necessarily find some intent to create a separate right to bring a lawsuit. So the outcome in California, I think, is going to be unique to California litigants and not necessarily have any carryover effect to cities that are going to challenge relocations in other states. So we have the Raiders saga, I guess, getting tossed out. Uh, Dan, a couple, uh, I guess a couple weeks, months ago at this point, the uh, San Diego Chargers lawsuits got uh, thrown out. So uh, yeah, of those three relocation cases, the St. Louis Rams, so we can, Dan, you and I spent a lot of time making fun of that uh, $790 million settlement once upon a time, but at the end of the day, right, one of the three cities that, that uh, you know, relocated from, be it St. Louis, Oakland, and San Diego, only one of them received a nickel, and that was uh, St. Louis. So maybe, yeah, maybe in that context, it's not as bad. Uh, I think it is. I think it is. I think it might be convenient for the city and for uh, those who support the settlement to point to the California result or the Oakland result and say, hey, see, we were right. <laughs> but, but, but you have to remember, they were sitting with a positive court ruling on the verge of trial. Uh, they had the tiger by the tail and had all the leverage and could have, could have taken this case to trial and been sitting in a much more advantageous position. I'm not going to Monday morning quarterback this and say, hey, they, maybe they were right. Under Missouri law, the theory was correct. Under California law, maybe it wasn't. But I think this isn't the end of the story, Dan, because there are two more poll cards left to play for the city of Oakland. You have further judicial review by the California Supreme Court and then potentially a right of certiorari to the United States Supreme Court. And I would expect our friend Jim Quinn, who's been a guest on the show two or three times, who's counsel for the city of Oakland, to pursue at least the California Supreme Court option, because if you read the decision, it wasn't a slam dunk for the NFL and the Oakland Raiders. The appellate court ruled that the city of Oakland satisfied the first prong of the three-part test. The second prong of the three-part test, which was the Guna Wardane decision out of the California Supreme Court 2019, where the court went against the city of Oakland was on the third prong, that the third party, meaning the city of Oakland, had to establish that the contract permitted the third party to bring its own breach of contract action against the contracting party and that that's consistent with the objectives of the contract. I think that argument can be made still because the principles or the joint statement of principles that was the separate contract between the League of Mayors, the city, you know, the, the, the United States Conference of Mayors and the National Football League, that in and of itself was a contract. And that contract was incorporated within the NFL relocation guidelines as per the congressional testimony of Paul Tagliabue. So I think there's still a chance here that Mr. Quinn can pursue further judicial review from the California Supreme Court and then maybe potentially from the U.S. Supreme Court. But I would say it's still at this point, I would call, I would characterize it as a long shot because this was not a split opinion. This was three judges agreeing with each other. There was no dissenting or concurring opinion. So I think, I think the one-sidedness of this appellate ruling suggests to me that there's a greater than 50% likelihood that the California Supreme Court would either not review this case or enter a decision consistent with the Court of Appeals ruling. But I, I expect that this isn't the end of the story, uh, that he's going to take an appeal to the California Supreme Court and then potentially the U.S. Supreme Court. There's nothing to lose here. And even if he does lose, Buffalo, Tennessee, none of the other cities can worry too much about this outcome because of the three-part test 
that really makes a third-party beneficiary claim very difficult to advance in the California state courts. The same test does not apply in other states. And as we saw in Missouri, the standard for third-party beneficiary is simply whether the agreement intended to benefit a third party, not whether it intended to create lawsuit rights, but simply whether a third party was an intended beneficiary under the contract. Yeah, Dan, I don't have that much to, to add to that analysis. Obviously, you're spot on there. But for people following that, uh, that long St. Louis Rams relocation case, this is uh, you know, one, one to follow. Uh, and Jim Quinn, I, I imagine will be on with us at some point to uh, to break down at least uh, the saga when there is some resolution to it. Okay, so moving forward, we like to end uh, our shows with uh, things to watch for in sports, as we call what to watch for. So I'll I'll lead us off here. We've had an interesting week or so in uh, our sports vernacular, sports stories. A lot of fans being involved. So uh, one story that we did not talk about today, we have talked about it once upon a time. Jalen Hurts, Philadelphia Eagles quarterback, was once walking off the field and a guardrail fell down, almost hit Jalen Hurts, but a bunch of fans actually fell out of the stands. There's a lawsuit now with those fans uh, suing for the uh, collapse of those guardrails. And then we have the fan being a Jets fan being arrested who was at a Cleveland Browns game this past week, threw a bottle from the stands and appeared to hit Jimmy Haslam, the owner of the team. He gets arrested. Another video that went viral, Kyler Murray, the police were investigating a fan uh, I guess punching with an open hand slap Kyler in the face after he scored a touchdown. So I don't know. Fans have been in the news a lot recently and uh, we spoke about it. This Aaron judge ball, Mike, you, you did a, a fantastic job breaking that lawsuit down a very famous case that is in the one L property case books. It's not in the sports law textbooks. I'm sure it is, but it's also in the property textbooks about how a ball can be split between two people. I guess the judge orders it to sell, sell it. And then those two people split the proceeds. So, you know, I'm not sure how many homers Judge will hit, but if the 60-second home run ball is worth a million dollars, whatever that final ball is, if it's 65, 66, 67, I'm sure that's going to be worth a pretty penny too. So I am expecting at least one lawsuit to come out of this Judge home run sweepstakes, at least one. So that that's my what to watch for. Mike, you want to go next? What do you got? Something that's developed recently, very recently, uh, you know, Woj with his Woj bombs came out saying that the Boston Celtics uh, head coach Ime Udoka is facing, and this is very vague. So it's, this is why it's what to watch for because it's developing. He's facing possible disciplinary action, including potentially a significant suspension. And the cause of it is for an unspecified violation of organizational guidelines. That's about as, as direct as as they could be. It's pretty vague. So it's something that's going to develop in the next couple of days. Woj says that discussions are ongoing with the Celtics for their final determination of such punishment or suspension. So that's definitely something to keep an eye on. We'll, we will also keep you covered. Yeah, I got two things. Uh, first of all, we don't know what's uh, we don't know what the facts yet are in the Celtics investigation. I think by the time this podcast airs, we may have a little bit more. So we'll cover that next week. But I got I got I got two different areas I want to focus on real quickly. Uh, you know, the rising incidents of fan violence at games. Kyla Murray, you got Jimmy Haslam. I remember following the New York Rangers march to the Stanley Cup you know, finals. There was uh, an incident following one of the games at the Garden in which uh, a Rangers fan, you know, cold cocked a, a fan wearing a Tampa Bay Lightning jersey, knocked him out unconscious. These incidents are rising. I, I, and I don't know, I don't know what the root cause is, whether it's the, the general polarization, political polarization in society or, you know, just, just pent up frustrations from the pandemic. But there's certainly substantial increase in the occurrence of these fan violence incidents. And, 
it's a continuing story on a what to watch for because you know this is going to occur again week after week you know next month the month after and what are we going to do about it and i have a couple of suggestions and i think we should maybe devote a future episode to it i think you know almost akin to how state boxing commissions recognize license suspensions from other jurisdictions i think merely banning a fan from attending that team's games at that arena or maybe even a sport-wide ban isn't enough. I believe that the leagues should recognize a, a sort of an industry-wide ban prohibiting fans from attending any live professional sporting events who've committed any act of violence at any professional sporting event, regardless of sport. So if you did this at an NFL game, you should be banned not only from the Arizona Cardinals you know, stadium, but you should be banned from any NFL game any NBA game, NHL, Major League Baseball at all, there should be a database of fans who engage in acts of violence at professional sporting events so that they can never, never again attend a live professional sporting event. That should be the punishment because if you, if you, if you want to have any kind of deterrence effect, you need, you need to have real penalties rather than have any kind of misdemeanor assault charges that end up resulting in no, no jail time. So we need the leagues to maybe stiffen the penalties and create a database to make sure that these fans never are able to attend a live sporting event again. And that might have a channeling effect on the behavior of fans. And then number two, I think the states need to tighten the laws and create, you know, sort of these escalators so that if fans create or commit any acts of violence at a live professional sporting event, maybe it becomes a felony. Maybe it becomes a, a, a higher misdemeanor that's subjected to a, a, a stiffer punishment. So if the states can make the laws and the, and the criminal laws, uh, you know, I, I guess more severe to punish fans for engaging in this kind of conduct, we might see a decline and a decrease in these, you know, ugly incidents going forward. Dan, before you get to your, your second what to watch for, uh, spoiler alert, I know what your second what to watch for is. It is about the sports betting circle. But Dan, I think it's only appropriate. You know, our newest sponsor to the podcast, Better Edge, one of the leaders in peer-to-peer sports betting. Uh, Dan, this was a contact you made. We talk a lot in this podcast about networking, the value of going outside your circles, going to these events, meeting people, getting out in public, right? You know, we're COVID pandemic started in March, 2020. Hopefully we're, we're out of it. Um, you know, but you know, at the end of the day, uh, going to events has always been key to meet people. So Dan, uh, maybe you should tell the story. You were, you were at a, an industry event and, uh, you ran into these better edge guys and a couple months later, they're now sponsors of the podcast. You want to tell the story? Sure. You know, I'm a, I'm a regular on the sports betting and gambling industry conference circuit. And I was at the SBC North American summit in the great state of New Jersey back in July. And um, I met up with Greg Kajewski, who's the co-founder of Better Edge. And Greg and I, you know, I guess have known each other on and off through attending gaming conferences. And we, we connected at the SBC North American Summit and just and, and started to broach the idea of Better Edge being a sponsor of Conduct Detrimental. And, and, and this was like at the height of the company being recognized by the SBC company is winning the, I think they won the rising star for 2022 at the SBC North American Summit. They, they won a big award recognizing Better Edge as one of the up and coming rising stars in the gaming industry. And on the, on the heels of that, Greg and I began a discussion that has gone on for a couple of months about getting Better Edge to be a sponsor of Conduct Detrimental. And I think, Dan, you've got some news to report on that front. 
I mean, they are officially a sponsor. I mean, maybe maybe the news, Dan, speaking of networking, the Better Edge guys are based in, in Minnesota, Minneapolis. People listen to the podcast. They know that Taryn Sharma is a law student, uh, or former law student, recent graduate of Minnesota Law School, now a professor over there. The Better Edge guys called me and they said, we'd love to sponsor this. So we, we set them up. We now have our own uh, promo code. Again, we, we said it last week, but it's uh, our promo code there is conduct a free $20 in your pocket. If you're concerned about the house winning on bets, that is peer-to-peer betting. So uh, again, that will, so one of the betters has to win when you're betting peer-to-peer. But um, I mentioned the story, Dan, speaking of networking, they called me up and they said, do you have anybody uh, that's in Minnesota that would want to come to our uh, Monday night kickoff event, the Vikings, uh, the Eagles? Not a good result for the Minnesota Vikings there, but we'll leave that aside. I called up Taryn. I said, Taryn, how close are you to the Better Edge HQ? He says they're down the street. So yeah, Taryn and uh, the Better Edge guys hung out at a Minnesota Vikings networking event. So you never know where sports law is, Dan. It's it's all across the country. Certainly happy to set those guys up. And, uh, you know, I really want to welcome Better Edge to the Conic Detrimental family. Well, they joined us just in time, Dan, because we're now on the verge of probably the biggest story in the post-PASPA era for sports betting. We're, we're approaching election day in California, the general election. There's not going to be just one, but there are going to be two ballot questions directed to the legality of sports betting in California, this Proposition 26, which would allow for in-person sports betting at tribal casinos and and state-licensed horse racetracks. And then there's Proposition 27, which would allow online sports betting throughout California. And uh, a record $500 million approximately has been spent on this ballot campaign, both in favor and in opposition to the various initiatives. So going forward, we're about six weeks away from election day. You can bet that we're going to cover this story uh, in in significant detail. And I think we're going to plan a live town hall or at least a full standalone episode to kind of go through the issues, compare the two ballot initiatives, arguments for, arguments against, and some of the legal issues that might pop up post-election day this when, when, when all is said and done, this is going to be the biggest sports betting news since PASPA was overturned by the United States Supreme Court in the middle of May of 2018. So we're, we're on the cusp of this major battle over sports betting. And I think Better Edge joined us just in the nick of time because this is going to be the focus of at least one of our episodes in the month of October and probably early November and maybe even in the aftermath of the election. So we're going to be hammering this issue and following it very closely in the weeks ahead. So there you have it. You have, uh, you know, watch, watch for on the Aaron Judge home rumble, Ime Adoka, California sports betting. Lots to look forward to. There is never, never a dull moment in sports law. It never ceases to amaze me. So, yeah, I think we can put this episode in the books for Dan Wallach, myself, Mike Lawson, the Conic Detrimental family at large, and our new friends in the Conic Detrimental universe, Better Edge, Or Horgan, and Flengy, and of course, Themis Bar Review. We want to thank you for listening to us over at Conic Detrimental, and uh, yeah, we'll see you next time on another episode of Conic Detrimental.